Today, I have a very special guest, Lex Sokolin, who is the founder of Generative Ventures. Very excited to have him on this podcast. We're going to dig a lot more into the financial services sector. Lex, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. So Lex, we always love to go into the um, really the, the journey that um, our guests have been on to get them into the position um, that they're in today. Um, you have a very storied background. Would love to get a quick thumbnail of uh, what led you to where you are today before we dig into some of the questions. I've, I've done a lot of stuff, but I'd say there's some organizing principles for um, my career. The first is I, I have a pretty traditional um, upbringing in financial services. So, um, you know, I started at Lehman Brothers in investment management as, a, as an analyst. Um, I did some banking at Deutsche Bank. Um, I got a JD MBA at Columbia. So kind of economics, finance and law, that kind of um, structured approach. Uh, but then I also always had um, an interest in the visual arts and me new media and technology and kind of grew up building websites and interactive flash programs and things that generally don't fit very well with um, well-designed spreadsheets and PowerPoints. Um, and so in the beginning of my career, that was a difficulty, but um, as, I, um, as I was able to do more types of things, I, I was able to bring in that creative spark into my work. So in the, in the 2010s, I started, I founded a robo-advisor and, and built it out in the US, um, which became a fairly large wealth tech platform called Advisor Engine. Um, I then spent a few years building a fintech research practice at Autonomous Research. And I was, I was looking at different platform shifts that, that are happening to finance. And the fintech space felt very small or very incremental, you know, not small in the sense of like mm -hmm. revenues, but small in the sense of, of like taking the old thing and adding another brick and not really changing anything fundamentally. Um, and so I started focusing on these platform shifts and artificial intelligence, blockchain, and um, kind of augmented and virtual reality were the three that, that seemed to matter. Mm -hmm. And around 2016, when I was doing this, 2016 to 2019, um, blockchains um, were, were ahead of the rest in terms of applicability to finance. And so I, f I focused very deeply on the Ethereum ecosystem, uh, joined Consensus, which is uh, kind of a core blockchain tech company, um, and and was there for four years, um, starting in the beginning of the sort of the decentralized finance boom. Um, okay. And through that developed, you know, an appreciation for what what it's like to start economies and financial infrastructure from scratch. You know, it, it almost, this never happens. You, you never, uh, get the chance to build macro economies and completely new payment rails, completely new banking and investment rails from scratch. And so uh, for me, that Web3 journey was really interesting. Uh, at the end of it, though, which is about last year when I left Consensus to, to, to found Generative Ventures, um, I, I had a bit of an existential question as to, is there more than finance in, in um, these Web3 architectures? Is there other, is there productive economic activity like GDP outside of just capital markets exchange and payment rails. Um, and I came to this idea that um, we need economic growth uh, on these protocols and the economic growth most likely to happen is actually from machine labor. And so I started looking at generative AI, not as sort of 
a complete science fiction story about uh, uploading yourself into the mega brain and going into a Dyson sphere around the sun, although we're happy to talk about that. Um, but more about um, if people are using generative AI to alter their productivity and they're making digital assets and digital content and digital objects, where are those things going to go? Where are they going to be traded? What are the market venues for them? And then how are they going to be owned? And further out in the world of AI agents and open source models that are available to be used or rented or, or, or um, transacted, like if you have 20 different AI agents doing financial things on your behalf, again, the question of who gets to, what's the financial layer for that and who gets to own it? And so um, that idea was really compelling to me. Um, and I started an early stage venture fund along with my partner, Will and Annabelle, uh, called uh, Generative Ventures. And we've been in the market for a little bit over a year. Amazing. I, I love that journey because you have seen traditional finance. You had one foot in that. And then over the years, you've now explored many other alternatives, right? Um, I think blockchain obviously has so much potential. It's realizing some of that, but a lot to be realized still. And then I think given where generative AI is today, it's finally able to add impact. As you said, like I think AI 10 years ago would have a limited impact in finance as, as a whole. It was more a, kind of a future concept. Now, I think with, with machine economy, AI agents, um, creating great automation, which is really the kind of the thing that um, uh, is the broader uh, arching mission of multimodal, the, the startup that I run, um, you know, very much that, that resonates a lot with me. Um, you know, qu quick question right off the top, um, you know, AI as it pertains to, let's say, traditional finance before we maybe get into some blockchain related activities in traditional finance. Where do you um, really see AI having an impact on a timescale that perhaps makes sense, like a one to three year timescale? Uh, because there are a lot of people that talk about you know, future applications of AI and there's a lot of hype in this cycle today. I'm just curious sort of where you see the low hanging fruit. Sure. Um, so there is a ton of uh, AI and finance already today. It's already there. It's it's done. Um, and the word AI is, of course, deceptive because it just means math and statistics. So there's a lot of math and statistics uh, in finance today. Um, I think for for the modern kind of fintech AI that that people think about, it turned around probably in 2014 or 2015 um, when neural networks and machine learning approaches became sufficiently performant where they could outcompete people on tasks. You know, the kind of the marquee task would be telling apart the difference between a cat and a dog. Uh, and so in the ImageNet competition, it was 2015 in which um, a neural network sort of like brute forced performance better than a, a human at seeing a particular image. Um, and machine learning is, um, is different from generative AI. It's kind of the, the step towards it where you you take lots and lots of structured data uh, and then you figure out an answer to the next unit of structured data. So if you know all of these um, past uh, examples of lending underwriting, the next person that's coming in with some set of particular uh, circumstances, um, should we do an underwriting decision or not? And then you go back and you reinforce that with learning of what the outcomes are. And so you, you can update that and the model gets better and better and better. You know, and there are interesting things that being done, like um, the machine learning was being pointed at not just 
like FICO scores and zip codes and so on. But it was pointed out like the free comment field that the person applying for the loan uh, would fill out. And if they said, um, you know, I'm, I'm using this loan because I'm going to study for uh, this position to be a lawyer. Uh, mm-hmm. Statistically, that was better than somebody saying, I swear to God, I will pay it back. You know, and this is like a real example sure. I remember from interviewing people. Um, so like religious language in your loan application is a, is a red flag. Um, but then there are other examples like just the image recognition one. There's an awesome company called Tractable. I think that's their name where they've got, um, they're able to do, um, insurance claims and Mm -hmm. on the fly. So, you know, the user would take a picture, they, they crash their car, uh, or they, uh, you know, throw a pot out of their window in their house or like their leaf leak, their, their roof leaks or whatever. So they take a picture of the damage. They send it through, um, the image recognition parses the image for whatever it is, and then associates that with some amount of damage. And then that goes to connect to an insurance policy that this person has and, you know, automatically do payouts. So there's been tons of machine learning types of applications. I gave you one in lending, one in insurance. There's, there's others in capital markets, especially around, um, uh, trade routing, uh, mm-hmm. like trade modeling, things like that. Um, payments and fraud, uh, sort of, um, use cases, uh, as well, you know, so figuring out if somebody's putting in a credit card and if, if it's a real credit card or, or not, and so on identity. So there's lots and lots of use cases already in finance today. Mm-hmm. And I think the difficulty actually is figuring out is, is that next step of figuring out how to interact with generative AI, because it is not the same data architecture as machine learning. So where, where machine learning will give you an answer for a particular set of data and you can be all precious about how important your data is and it's only yours and it has to be on premise, you know, and, and mm-hmm. everyone's got to wear a suit, uh, and, and be in a Brown office on Fridays. Um, Generative AI is not like that. Generative AI is somebody spent $150 million to create a mega brain that's going to live on their servers and good luck getting it off of there. Uh, and the moment you let it into your house, it will, it will, uh, you know, make sense of everything and you'll never, you'll never beat it. You know, there's already, um, there's already, uh, interesting reports about Bloomberg GPT, you know, uh, was built as like a finance GPT. And yeah. their initial one, like outperform GPT three, uh, and then compared to GPT four, it just sucks, you know? So like the general intelligence is just better, uh, than the, 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 um, kind of super tuned, uh, finance only cases. So I think that's the, the real question for me is, okay. Um, if now you're in a place where stati- statistics can actually like hallucinate content and make, make these things, make content and summaries and. Um, how does that interact with financial services? Um, how does it break down the data silos and the privacy silos and all that? Um, and I think we're only in the very beginning of figuring that out. Yeah, I think these are amazing points. I mean, I think traditionally machine learning was, uh, built internally on internal data. The model lived there. You had complete control, right? Guardrails, firewalls for for everything that was built, and it was very like task specific. You built specific models for different tasks that you, as an organization, had to go solve. Now, I think the equation has shifted a little bit, which is you're using um, basically uh, foundation models from uh, other players, 
um, that very likely may ver sit um, outside of your your um, your um, uh, cloud, right? Your on-prem or cloud uh, deployment, and then uh, you don't have full control, and so that loss of control is a big one. Um, I'm, I'm curious, given the complex regulatory and legacy systems as well that are in place today within traditional finance, um, you know, what are the most effective strategies for integrating um, some of these AI technologies, especially ones that are you know, owned by closed source players like uh, Anthropic or an open AI? Yeah, I mean, my first, um, my first instinct is just to be like super flippant, you know, uh, and uh, uh, to, to cheerlead um, the, the destruction of prior structures as a result of uh, much better new technology. But that's not helpful because um, people in banks, you know, that work on digital transformation do have a really difficult job. They often work with operating executives who have, um, who don't have an appreciation for um, the architecture of new services and what it requires and, you know, are too in the weeds and too busy to really prioritize novelty over kind of profit and cash flow. Um, you know, and I'm, and I'm not operating a innovation department. Um, so mm -hmm. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what I think some of the paths available, I think is the, in the, the open source world. So, um, while there's going to be uh, massive centralization of machine intelligence into probably two or three players, uh, open AI, Google, and maybe somebody else, or we'll, we'll see, but, um, yeah you're going to have the same kind of outcome as you have for the search engine where there's going to be one or two very polished, very large default tech players um, who will provide um, the, the conversational interface to, to the machine brain. And I think there's an interesting question in there, actually, one that you hadn't asked, but I'll, I'll spill into a little bit. So the interesting question is, are you going to have uh, lots of functional applications with some intelligence inside? So like, uh, I'm a broker dealer and here's my broker dealer website. And on my broker dealer website, you can trade stocks because that's what you like. And then if you have questions about stocks, you can ask our chatbot, you know, broker dealer GPT, and it will tell you, uh, it's your personal research assistant, right? It's sort of like the, uh, the boundary of imagination for a lot of finance people. Um, and so in this way, you have AI as a feature within the financial store full of financial mm -hmm. products. Um, I think that's probably true and that can happen, you know, and if, and there are ways you can do this without um, invoking uh, some giant big tech octopus into your tech stack. It's easier to just API into chat GPT um, and because then you get enterprise support and you get to sort of sure. be handheld through this and all this stuff. But if you want enterprise support and to pay for it, you, you know, like you are going to give up all your control. Um, you can alternately do this by taking open source models. There's lots and lots of um, LLMs that are available um, that are also far more performant, uh, meaning like they, they just take a lot less uh, compute, a lot less energy, far fewer uh, GPUs. Uh, to run. Uh, and mm -hmm. although their results are kind of maybe nine to 12 months behind the state of the art for the really big models, they're still really good. Um, and so it is possible for, I think, a financial institution to retain control by running local models that, um, that, that are 
not as good, but are open source and they have more control over, I mean, that requires some expensive people and um, the desire to actually own technology rather than rent it from people who know how to do it. The, the more existential point is, okay, having a nice AI feature in your finance app, God bless, who cares? Uh, the, the real situation is uh, people will interact uh, largely with machine brains and machine friends. Uh, and uh, the artificial intelligence layer is like the internet or like the, the Apple operating system. It is the substrate in which app other applications live, other deterministic sort of like software, if this, then that applications uh, embedded in, uh, in, in, in this kind of intelligence, the conversational intelligence layer. And so I think it's more interesting. I could be a hundred percent wrong. Absolutely. But I think it's more interesting to explore the world where people shop through, uh, their interactions with AI, you know, uh, like where, where financial products are embedded in their conversations. Um, mm -hmm. and where the execution of those financial products is embedded with in, within conversations where you start have you know, is it the JP Morgan or the Morgan Stanley or the Goldman Sachs AI agent that is, uh, th that is the best tuned and the most optimized and is the fastest at execution and is the least boring and frustrating and corporate, but has a personality and is fun. Um, you know, and that's the real challenge because the disruptive platform shift is, uh, losing distribution to this like giant machine intelligence. Um, yeah. so I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah, I think those are amazing points. I think, um, you know, one of the things that we focus a lot on with the clients that we work with, um, as we go through this, um, like basically the decision point is open, uh, closed source is a lot better than open source off, off the, off the bat. So if you want to get great results very, very quickly, you're going to be uh, much better off using closed source. But a lot of the companies we talk to, they want to build on their uh, virtual private cloud or on-prem. And you could do that, um, you know, largely thanks to Meta and what they've done with Llama 2 and, and all the Llama 2 variants. But you do need a lot of instructions, essentially, to fine-tune with. And at that point, you can bridge the gap with closed source models. You maybe exceed that for a particular task, but it's much, much harder. You need a lot more data, a lot more resources in terms of personnel. It takes longer. And eventually, I think that might be a, a, a path forward to continue to build on your virtual private cloud or on-prem using an open source model, fine-tuning it. Um, but I think uh, in a lot of companies are not quite equipped with that technical talent in-house um, to do that. And so the challenge is like, do you um, open up your doors a little bit to closed source models um, and allow for a little bit of loss of control to stay competitive? Or do you go and invest very heavily into, uh, into open source, knowing that that's going to be a longer term game because it's going to require more resources and, and more data uh, before you can get competitive with some of the Yeah, I mean, people, people don't know what they're investing in. They don't know what outcome they want. So you can't, you can't run a proof of concept. Um, like so many proofs of concepts at, 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 uh, at enterprises are because people pitch them, not mm -hmm. because they have an idea, you know, um, and, and in, in sourcing a generative AI capability and building out a team when you don't know what it is that you're doing or why, or what the business case is. And you don't have any people who would know how to build a business case and they don't want to work for you. And, you know, and like, you can't hire them and you can't change your culture and all like 
it, there's no start or finish to this question, right? So um, I think it's natural then to say like, yeah, we'll partner with an open AI to, to spend the time to help us build this out. Well, if you're going to partner with open AI or, you know, another Anthropic or whoever, like be prepared to f feed the machine. That's why, why else would they work with you? Like what's so special about your, there's nothing special about your financial data, literally nothing, absolutely nothing. You turn on plaid, you suck it out the end. Um, you know, and so, um, it's, it's the customer's data, right? I think we're also going to a world where, and again, this is in part my radicalization through blockchain and web three, but like mm -hmm. I've been operating in a world for like five years where all financial data is transparent. It's trivial, uh, to just see all the flows of every single, you know, uh, bank account and their sizes and what they're doing. And not only that, but you can see into the future because you can see what the, what blocks are submitted forward. And so, um, Obviously, there is an issue of privacy and preserving identity, and that's a separate yep. issue. Uh, but systemically, like there's there's nothing super profound that a bank can keep that is, um, you know, it, these are commodity products. The, the secret sauce maybe is like in large institutional capital markets trading or something like that. But um, I think it's it's really hard uh, because I get again I think structurally for for financial institutions, it just, they feel so constrained between the regulation and the requirements and the record keeping and the compliance and, and, yep. and, and so it feels impossible. Uh, but just because it feels impossible, the fact that it feels impossible doesn't matter to the people who are moving past you at light speed. Uh, they're still sure. going to do it, you know, and, and so, yep. um, you have to figure out that situation. Yeah. I think it's a very difficult situation because there's regulatory risk, compliance risk, legal risk, all these risks, not to mention career risk for people in these in these seats that are trying to make sure that what they do is not going to ultimately get fired, right? Um, uh, because they're putting their neck out too much on the line. But I think you're you're absolutely right, which is like um, a lot of um, innovation will require um, changing the way that traditional banks view um, the use of technology that's outside of their walls. And it took them a while from going from physical on prem to even even virtual private clouds. That's I think this is another. Sorry to interrupt, but like, was it Experian that lost like the identities of 350 million yeah. Americans because they had like uh, a data center where they were running uh, like 2008 server software and the default password was one, two, three, four, five or like password, you know, like somebody just came in and put password into the like the, the, the old computer and like got all the stuff, you know, so like I just have so little sympathy for all this hand wringing about like regulation and compliance and like mm -hmm. uh, data protection while there's such profound failure on the basics all the time, you know, uh, or Wells Fargo with its manufacturing of like with the defrauding like 200 million people by giving them credit cards that they don't never signed up for. Like that's that's the profound that's the issue in my mind. Yeah. So move, moving from traditional finance to some basically blockchain and building on blockchain, do you think um, a lot of what um, traditional finance is doing today could be built using blockchain and blockchain is able to then incorporate AI because it's you know, basically the two technologies since they're more next gen and um, uh, you know, there's just a, a greater level of, of uh, I guess, synergy um, upfront. I mean, is, is that the, the way forward sort of almost bypassing the traditional finance layer? Or is the alternative that 
traditional finance incorporates some of blockchain, incorporates some of AI, and still retains um, uh, the mainstream distribution that it does today? I think it's just different markets. Um, and I think it's okay. I think it's all right for there to be multiple generations of technology functioning at the same time. So for example, when you get into an Uber, uh, you're not trying to pay the cab driver with uh, paper money, with cash. They won't take it. Yeah. Your dollars are no good for an Uber driver. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's not applicable. Um, you need to pay through um, credit card rails that are attached into Apple Pay that are then attached uh, through the App Store into the Uber app and so on, right? So literally, uh, cash doesn't work, broken. In the same way, trying to pay with your credit card on a blockchain makes no sense. There's no, there's nowhere to shove the thing in. It doesn't work. Um, but it's okay. Like some, people go about their life uh, buying things with cash and buying things with credit cards, and occasionally people will use uh, crypto wallets to buy digital assets on blockchain networks. Um, and these are j just different venues. So for me, the question is. What kinds of goods and services are available in these different markets? You know, like mm -hmm. uh, if you want to buy a delicious burger in a park on a Sunday, like maybe you're going to pay with cash. Uh, if you want to uh, buy something on Amazon or pay for. My robot was listening. Um, if, <laughs> if you if uh, uh, or if you want to pay for some sort of experience online with, uh, you know, e-commerce e or. Um, a mobile app on on the app store you're going to use web 2 rails stripe sort of that stack um and if you are the type of person who has a digital identity who's, who's more invested in their digital identity than maybe the average person and you care about digital assets and your your online community you're engaged in social media and maybe you you participate in DAOs or you hold crypto assets and that's part of your your sort of asset allocation and, and by the way, you know, depending on the country and the age, it's 20%, uh, 25% of an asset allocation in crypto is not unusual these days. You know, yeah. So it's, if, if you look in, in Asia or South America, um, if you look at uh, Gen Z and like young, young millennials, uh, you're going to have people who are 20% in crypto um, and, you know, are, aren't holding many of the traditional uh, asset classes. Yeah. Anyway, um, so if for people who are engaged in that market, they're going to be using um, Web3 fintech and payment tools. Um, so then the question about AI is interesting because AI is kind of it's orthogonal, right? It's, it goes in a different dimension. One thing is mm -hmm. horizontal. The other thing is vertical or vice versa. Um, I think that we're going to see a ton of AI and we already do see a ton of um, AI is applied to fintech because that's really what's been available. Um, Fintech and machine learning, I think, is a very established category. Um, unfortunately, from like an investment point of view, most of uh, fintech machine learning stuff has been pushed into like services and on-prem deployment. And like, like the structure of the industry, I don't think, has allowed uh, companies to break through into large independent entities with a few exceptions, yep. but it's, it's a diff difficult go-to-market. Um, I think there's going to be also a ton of just pure finance integrated into the big AI players in the same way that um, if you use an Apple phone and you have a card in there, you know, for a long time, that was a Goldman Sachs card. Uh, or if you have a bank account, it's a Goldman Sachs bank account, or it's underwritten by Green Dot, or it's underwritten by a, um, a, a, a good old bank, regular bank. 
um, that focuses on banking as a service or embedded fintech. And so um, if I am OpenAI and I have the choice of uh, Goldman Sachs or uh, Revolut, you know, or, or Robinhood mm-hmm. or whatever, uh, or Coinbase, like I'm going to go with Goldman Sachs. So I, I think the, the big companies are still in this place where they're probably partnering with big companies and even leaving the fintechs out of it. Um, but then where my interest goes is in the Web3 space. Um, Web3 has been pretty limited in being able to integrate AI because it has really limited processing capacity. So if you think about blockchains as a place where there's kind of two steps. The first is blockchains are um, a, a way to have scarce digital assets. So something that it, you, you uh, interact with online, but there's only one of it, you know, or there's a limited amount of it. Um, it can be infinitely divisible, but nonetheless, it has a limited amount. Scarcity on the internet is a very difficult um, uh, characteristics to, to manufacture. So you have digital scarcity, and then uh, on top of that, you have programmability. So you can you can create programs that can move around those digital uh, assets in any way you want. Mm-hmm. Now, it could be, in the case of Bitcoin, you are moving around one shiny rock uh, in only one way. There's not, you know, it's the first thing. Um, so it has pretty limited capability. That's not true anymore. You have ordinals and sort of um, layer twos on Bitcoin, but largely it's, it's hard to program. Um, but then you've got um, things like Ethereum and now Solana and Arbitrum and layer twos and so on. And these are places that in addition to the digital asset have a computer in them. And it's a very expensive computer because the things the computer does are validated by the whole network. So you know that whatever the computer did, it actually did. Uh, You can't spoof it, it's very expensive and so on. Um, In order to get that outcome, there's just, it's, it's, you don't have a lot of throughput, you know? So it's like, uh, you've got a Nintendo, you've got a, you're playing Pong, right? Uh, Everything is, highly compressed and very, very expensive to, to run. Now, those limitations are being limit, being, being um, uh, removed through scaling solutions and so on. And I think for anybody who's looking at the space today, like you can get your 10,000 transactions per second and so on. But imagine trying to shove a gigantic, you know, machine learning model that requires like a warehouse of 10,000 computers just to like process a thought um, yep. into uh, a Nintendo. It, it, it's, it's, it doesn't work. So um, only now do we, are we starting to see ways that you can integrate these two very different technologies of bringing intelligence into the economic architecture of Web3. Um, and I can definitely talk about how that's happening, but I think it's important to understand that there, there are limitations, like essentially bandwidth limitations. It's like trying to play yep. a, a high speed, like a high definition video in 2003 on real player, you know, it just doesn't fit. Um, but the way that technology as well as the software approaches have changed more and more is possible. And because more is possible, we're actually seeing that integration starting to happen. Yeah, I, I think those are incredible points, which is that there, there are different technologies for different markets, 
And sometimes they do overlap, but I think the audience that blockchain reaches versus traditional finance, depending on um, demographics and, and such, um, it can quite vary quite a lot. And, and I think I, you know, the analogy that I often draw is um, uh, managing investments. So traditionally, you, you had physical people, brokers that you tr normally turn to, whether you go and meet with them in person or go on calls and you use them for everything to make trades, to review your portfolio, to uh, you know, discuss all the major trends that are happening that you, you should be aware of. Eventually, obviously, people started trading online um, and it was more self-directed using brokerages and, and finding information on their own. Um, then you had robo-advisors, right? And they became part of the mix. And then um, and then you also had people that you could talk to when you need them, but otherwise you were just operating on your own. And, um, and now you basically have AI operators. So basically um, AI versions of agents that are uh, brokering trades, uh, relaying information to to the client, um, and uh, and people can pick and choose like which one they feel most comfortable with. Um, and I think with payment rails, it's, it's very very similar. You have an array of different payment rails depending on on uh, where where you are as an individual or as a company. Um, and so I don't think it's a it's a necessarily a comp like direct head to head competition. I think the market is fragmented, and and I think it allows for for many of those players to exist side by side. Um, it's very interesting, though, because I think the way you frame blockchain and and, and where AI could be applicable, I think there are challenges, as you said, um, just given uh, the way blockchain works and, and the requirements of, of AI and compute there to, to make intelligence happen. Um, it'll be really interesting to see whether traditional finance adopts um, you know, all, all of the things that are happening on the Gen AI front um, faster, perhaps, than what, what blockchain is able to do. But Again, I don't. I don't think it's like a rat race, one or the other, um, which is great. Um, I want to touch a little bit on what you said earlier because I think it's highly relevant. I think a lot of enterprise, particularly in traditional finance, are not aware of all the different use cases um, that Gen AI is capable of doing. Um, I think to be reductive, they view it largely as a chatbot, right? So where can you deliver chatbot-like experiences? I'm curious, given all the work that you're doing um, with, with your fund and, and just your broader awareness of the space. What are some use cases that traditional finance isn't thinking about that generative AI is able to deliver on beyond their traditional chatbot or assistant-like experience? Yeah, I, th I think I touched on this um, in part in talking about a feature experience within a financial app versus a financial app within the AI operating system. Um, so. I think that goes to kind of the, the question you, you ask. Um, another kind of framework that maybe is helpful is to split finance into um, manufacturing and distribution, you know, and manufacturing is the factory where you make the product. So uh, if you're, if you're a restaurant, it's the kitchen where you cook the food. If you're um, in investment management, it's uh, it's making the ETF or being the hedge fund manager, being private equity. Uh, you're just you're the factory. You make stuff. Um, and then there's distribution. And you mentioned a broker um, or an ATM or a bank branch or a website or a phone or a TikTok influencer or, um, you know, conversational agent. These are all ways to distribute that financial product. And there's stuff in between the, the middleware connecting it, the value chain. Um, while important is largely irrelevant to the structure of the industry. I mean, it's, it's just, it's wires that, that naturally emerge between, um, the product being made and then the, who touches the audience and I'm being glib a bit, but, uh, it's more that you don't tend to have like industry transformation starting from the middle. 
um, mm -hmm. I think you tend to have it either from distribution or manufacturing. Um, I think the sort of conversational interface uh, direction is all about distribution. So um, if all financial products are sold to you by uh, your, your robot friends on the internet, then you don't get it from anywhere else. Maybe you don't get it from mobile anymore. Maybe you don't need any more um, mobile apps. Uh, maybe you don't need any more websites. Uh, maybe you definitely don't need any more people. Uh, you know, maybe your customer support um, folks, you know, disappear. Um, so that's the distribution end. And then the manufacturing end is much, you know, it's how do you make investment product? Who makes investment product? Um, what happens when um, Chad GPT uh, can get on average a 98% score on the CFA uh, and the average CFA gets a 79% score on the CFA? As a consumer of financial advice, why would I want this? You know, why would I want the C student and not the A student? I wouldn't, because uh, the the other other than to say, you know, the and people go and say things like, "Well, um, people human humans are much more creative, and we can also do the emotional labor of supporting people through the difficult times in their life." Complete and utter nonsense. It's it's uh, it's just a cognitive mistake that incorrectly centers people. Uh, it's like uh, the sun revolves around the earth because we're on the earth. Uh, we, you know, we're better at emotions because we have them. No. Uh, so there's lots of examples um, and old examples of um, machine intelligence or, you know, machine learning systems being far more emotionally sensitive uh, and customizing around how people feel and what they say and being polite and being patient and providing mental health support, you know, and in the case of generative AI, having, you know, the, uh, the full capability of all the mental health professionals in the entire world and everything they've ever written, uh, integrated into its knowledge base and then packaged in the words of a five-year-old, right? Like that capability is something that every GPT powered financial advisor has. And no human financial advisor has, no matter how charismatic or wonderful they are. Um, so I think AI is more empathetic uh, over time than the average person. Certainly, the average person on a support line for you know for a bank call. Mm -hmm. um, and then AI is also more creative than people. Um, it, it just is. It sucks, but it is. Uh, you know, whether you look at the um, the creative AI applications in Midjourney or otherwise, or whether you look at just, you know, ask um, ask ChatGPT to write you a Shakespearean sonnet about modern portfolio theory and give it number of paragraphs, and you'll have it in two seconds. Um, so, I have I have I have quite a lot of concern around. Um, I think this is more the science fiction concern. I, th I think that the, the productivity floor from uh, these generative AI systems are going to be raised really, really high. And it will be very difficult for the average person to, to catch up to those productivity floors. And so the question in finance is, is then, you know, what do we train people to do? If it's not the tasks that are available in these software systems, then it's some sort of control of these software systems to be to be the human in the loop in some way. 
Um, I know I'm not answering your question of what the use cases are, and it's part of like, partly because it's, we're going from a very narrow world where we've talked about, you know, manufacturing distribution, we've talked about underwriting versus fraud, like, uh, yep. we're going from that to, uh, uh, you know, we've, we've just invented a person who can see five times better than a regular person, and we're putting them in charge of the, the imaging or seeing right and then you say like yeah. well what are they going to be better at well it's like the the the, the intelligence part um you know so i i think the, i would recommend just curiosity and like really active engagement um yeah. from finance firms yeah i i think you, you hit on a lot of great things there i, I think the embedding the financial products in the conversational experiences that are powered by the generative ai models is spot on because now all of a sudden it's a distribution mechanism for you to get products to the right people given what you know about them so it's not just really like just hand, handling customer support tickets um but it, it's actually weaving in what you sell and making the selling process happen finding the right person with the right product at the right time. So it's, it's, it's revenue impacting in a, in a material way. Um, and I think the, I, I think, I think you're right. Like when you put the CFA scores into perspective and the fact that these models also are able to learn from emotional um, content that has been passed through the training process, uh, all of a sudden the, the floor um, in terms of what humans need to be able to do to compete with these models is, is very, very high. Um, it's interesting because a lot of the companies we come across in, in mid-market and in enterprise, they're actually throttling some of the capabilities of Gen AI because they just feel like it's a little bit too um, too um, disruptive for them. So I'll give you an example. Underwriting comes to mind both for, for lending and for insurance policies. Uh, a lot of companies we talk to, they're okay with the generative AI or traditional ML doing the document processing, classifying documents, extracting information. But when it comes to decisioning, even though the quality of the decision could be very, very high at human level, maybe above human level, um, they don't want to do that. They actually want to have total agency on the part of the human. So the human still rubber stamps everything, even things that they ought not to be. Um, and part of this might be driven by compliance and, and legal reasons, but I'm curious sort of how do these institutions, the way that they've been thinking for a long time, um, go and trust some of this new technology? Because I think um, there's a lot of pilots, a lot of things in R&D, but when it comes to pushing into production, a large amount of that comes to what do you, like how do you develop trust? And then how do you slowly move some of the volume that people are doing away from people and to these models, right? Um, curious if you've seen that play out uh, with, with um, the companies you've encountered. Um, I haven't seen it play out in, in generative AI yet because the thing is kind of so fresh. And I think the mm -hmm. more obvious um, business opportunity is um, like marketing and content generation and sort of like for first order effects rather than these second order effects that, that we're talking about, you know, like there's, I'm an e equity research analyst and I want to summarize my transcript call. Like there's a million of those, right? So, yeah. um, but they're not really, I don't know that they're worth talking about because it, it's, um, it's narrow, it's very narrow. And I, I think it's, uh, it's fantastic. And you, you can build really profitable companies um, but I'm not sure they're kind of at, they capture the full implication of, of this technology. Um, I think the, the real way that change is going to happen isn't by better corporate, um, 
innovationing or experimentation. I think it's there's going to be a company that is a pure play that does lending using generative AI, and they don't care at all about your legacy fear of trusting a machine. They're just going to do it. And if their thing doesn't work, they'll wipe out and, you know, they'll go and, and create a, a different business. Um, sure. And then there's going to be a million of those companies. And out of those million, you know, out of those, let's say, realistically, out of those thousand companies, three or four will work. Um, yep. And once those four companies will work, it'll take five to 10 years. And they'll be at a scale where, you know, JP Morgan or City are going to try to buy them, or they're going to feel uncomfortable enough to replicate and copy their model. This is exactly what happened with RoboAdvice. Um, you know, I started my company in 2010. It took uh, Chase bought Nutmeg in the UK, where I now live, I think like in 2021, you know? Yeah. Um, and now it's just part of like their neobank experience and nobody talks about it or finds it uh, remarkable that you do just get RoboAdvice in your mobile app or you get a, a digital neobank from Chase. And absolutely zero, nothing at all uh, in, in that experience was pioneered by Chase. Nothing, zero. Yep. They came up with none of it. They stole it, bought it, copied. Um, and that's that's just how the finance industry is. It's not wrong. Like, that's totally fine. Mm -hmm. That's that's how um, I think the that's the right incentive where you have pioneers uh, who are very high risk seeking and... Um, are, are willing to blow up in order to try the new thing. And then you have large existing footprints whose primary purpose is to uh, be conservative and maintain and defend their uh, existing clients and their existing footprints. And that's exact, that's correct. You know, um, yep. and then they can, some of them are able to use the cash flow from their existing business to transition into uh, the new business model. And I think JP Morgan's been incredible at that. They've been highly successful, by far more successful than any other bank, in my view, um, at timing that mainstream adoption of yeah. emerging technologies. Like there are there are a number of banks that are much more that, that are I think are more innovative than JPM. Um, DBS in Singapore, you know, early adopter all the time. Um, Goldman Sachs went all in into into neo banking with a giant division and Marcus and all these acquisitions, and they mistimed it. Right, they were early, yep. or or um, they kind of it was too geeky or whatever it is. Um, so I think in part it's not the job of the existing industry to drive the innovation; it's the job of the existing industry to integrate and reward innovation. So. I think my only desire is that uh, they would acquire more companies, that they would pay for it instead of being like, we can build it in-house. And it's just sort of a, a better incentive structure for everybody. Um, but I would look towards, you know, early stage companies that are doing it as a pure play that, you know, who have no, who, who have no interest in historical barriers, but are fully persuaded about the rules of the new technology and trying to understand how to solve uh human financial needs but entirely in the context of the new technology um yep. and I, I that eventually it'll flow up into the large footprints but that's never the source of um of kind of that magic 
Yeah, I, I think I think that's um, that's a great point. I think a lot of the innovation happens um, in startup land, uh, and there are a lot of like verticalized SaaS, wholly like built on new technology, and um, a lot of them fail. But the ones that do succeed, then all of a sudden. Um, they become acquisition targets for some of these traditional finance um, to go and acquire. And sometimes that's how acquisition, I mean, uh, innovation happens is through acquisition. Of course, there are there is some innovation that happens internally, and, and there are a lot of pilots to that regard. Um, but yeah, it'll be interesting to see like both threads play out. And our thesis has been that definitely there will be um, verticalized SaaS players that do very well, uh, some that will go, grow and scale. Uh, we are um, kind of focused on the alternative, which is, we're trying to help these legacy players innovate from within. So basically building on their virtual private cloud, building some of the things that they need, pilots and moving them to production. That kind of helps them stay competitive. But I think any major groundbreaking change, um, you know, unfortunately, the, the truth is that acquisitions are, are a large part of that, right? Because it brings in new fresh blood and energy um, into the mix and it organizationally perhaps even disrupts the, the acquirer. Um, so they get a little bit of that, like that neo bank DNA in, into the mix. Um, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I think right now generative AI is too new to see sort of how it plays out in production. It'll be very interesting to see. Um, I know we're right at the, the top of the hour. Um, so I really appreciate you joining us on this podcast. We'll be really interested to see what, how this plays out in the next year or two. Um, hope to have you back on the podcast. We'll talk a little bit about how generative AI has been pushed into production, where it's been successful, where it's not. Uh, but Lex, where can people find more about you and what you're doing? Uh, we'll make sure to put that in the show notes. Absolutely. Uh, I'm easy to find on Twitter. It's Lex Soklin. Um, same on LinkedIn. And then uh, if you're interested in the fund and the ideas, uh, check out genventures.xyz. Amazing. Thanks, Lex. Really appreciate you having, having you on the show.